Brothers and sisters, will you join me in a brief word of prayer? Lord Jesus, we ask you now to provide food for our souls. Would you do what we are unable to do for ourselves and what others cannot do for us? Would you strengthen, strengthen our spirits on the inside? Would you give us a clear vision of yourselves through your word now? Strengthen us to obedience in your mighty name. Amen. In this grave hour, perhaps the most fateful in our history, I send to every household of my peoples, both at home and overseas, this message, spoken with the same depth of feeling for each one of you, as if I were able to cross the threshold and speak to you myself. For the second time in the lives of most of us, we are at war. Those words were spoken on September 3rd of 1939 by King George VI, King of England. Right on the eve of World War II, a time when the British people would be tested, pushed to the brink. And one of the most surprising quirks of history, the most unlikely of kings would pr prove to be just the king the people needed. I say unlikely because King George was not exactly what you would call a prototypical statesman. He was called the muttering monarch, the stammering sovereign. He was the king with trouble speaking publicly. Maybe you've seen the movie that came out a few years ago, The King's Speech, about him. George was not supposed to be king. He only became king because his brother had to step aside because of a scandal but he was forced into the position, and at that point, he had a long-running history of being unable to speak publicly. At one point, he was an army officer, and he was giving such a bad speech that his men actually were laughing at their officer in their officer's face. Someone had to jump in and say, don't laugh at the officer. Not exactly a great way to instill courage in your men. He became so well-known for his stuttering that one day he gave a speech, and he delivered it perfectly except for the letter W. Every time he tried to say the word weapon, it just wouldn't come out. Afterwards, someone asked him, George, you could fix everything else in the speech except for W. Well, why didn't you fix that? He said, if I don't make a mistake, people might not know it's me. King George, not the king you would expect, but it turned out the king that England needed. The people came to identify with his weakness, even to say if King George can do it, maybe we can too. The passage before us shows us another king, unlikely in a different sort. Not because he doesn't have kingly credentials, as we'll see, no. But because he's not the king that the people want him to be. The passage before us shows us King Jesus and one of the miracles that comes to mind almost immediately when you think of Jesus and who he is and what he does, the feeding of the 5,000. Oftentimes it's presented as if it's a, a story about sharing is caring. With just a little love, your lunch can stretch far enough for everyone to have a little. And yet when we look more closely, as is so often the case, this is one of those miracles with a message that Jesus is the king that provides like no one else can, 
but he's not a king we can control. We'll see that as we move through the passage. It's one miracle with a turning point at the end that shows us that Jesus is an uncontrollable king, one that we must bow before. Let's begin looking at verses 1 through 13. First, the miraculous provision of King Jesus. Now, chapter 6 is happening sometime after chapter 5. We know that because this is the only miracle recorded in all four of the Gospels. John just tells us after this. He doesn't really tell us how long it is, but if you piece together with the other Gospels, you can know that this is happening during the height of Jesus' popularity. It's right after when he sent the 12 out on that missionary journey. They went out and did miracles in Jesus' name and preached the, the good news of the coming of the kingdom of God. They were so successful that the crowd started gathering around them and they and Jesus decided it was time to get out of town. They got on a boat and crossed the Sea of Galilee. When they got to the western edge, it turned out their strategy hadn't really worked so well because the people just followed them around the lake on foot. So that's where our story picks up. Sometime after the events of chapter 5, they went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias, and then verse 2. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now John's giving us a series of clues that we are to pick up on this sense of spiritual anticipation, even zeal that is gripping the people. They've seen Jesus do miracles. Now there's a, a gathering of them. We'll find out later there's 5,000 men, and the way they counted, that didn't include women, so that's probably about 20,000 people if you include women and children. This great mass of people coming before Jesus as he's sitting up on a mountain in a desolate place. You're supposed to start thinking, oh, that sounds kind of familiar, almost like Mount Sinai, like how God met his people after delivering them out of Egypt. We're going to be, see a miracle he's about to do of providing, much like how God provided manna in the, in the desert. And in case we, we aren't picking up on these subtle hints that John's giving us, he removes all doubt. He, he gives us a loud clanging, clanging symbol that even the hardest of hearing would hear in verse 4. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Passover. That which kicked off the exodus. That which had become a bit like the 4th of July on steroids in John's day. You have to understand what it was like to be a first century Jew. You were a people that were used to being under the thumb of oppressors of some sort and had seen God deliver you in the past and were waiting for him to do it in the present. It wasn't long before when the Maccabean rebellion had happened, where Judas Maccabeus led a a uh, series of revolts against the Greeks, restoring worship, some manner of freedom to the Jewish people. Even further back than that, there was the exodus out of Egypt. The slave masters of Egypt, the way that they had been cruel to, the, to the God's people, and yet God, with a mighty hand and outstretched arm, had delivered them out, out to free them so that they could worship him, even bringing them to Mount Sinai revealing himself to the people. Well, now there was a third oppressor. Now it was the Romans. 
and nothing chafed a first century Jew like being under the thumb of the Romans. Oh, there was some manner of peace, some autonomy, and yet if you went high enough up the pecking order, eventually there would be a Roman of some sort. So the people in that day were looking for the coming Messiah, the king, and there was this expectation when that Messiah came, he would overthrow the Romans and restore God's people to the glory they used to have. The Passover became the focal point of that hope, that zealous expectation. It's on this day that Jesus comes and does this miracle. Now, the miracle has a setting of religious expectation, but it also has before us just an insurmountable problem by human standards. Look with me in verse 5. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to have a little. Now, the problem is one that's well known. This is, again, a very famous story. Jesus looks up and sees this crowd of about 20,000 people. You can think of it like a, a stadium full of Pacers fans worth, roughly. All these people out in the middle of nowhere, far out away from towns and anywhere where you could get food. Now, these people have been walking all day. We know it's probably the springtime because there was grass at this time of year. That means the hot Middle Eastern sun is starting to bear down on people. Now, this is a, an agrarian society, people that were much closer to uh, the starvation line than we are today. So many of us have so many different options for food, it's hard to fathom what it's like to really be close to the point of starvation. I mean, after church, think of all the different places you could go out to eat. You could pick dozens of different types of food to have. In your pantry at home, there will be lots of different temptations that you should probably avoid eating too much of while you watch the Super Bowl, right? Uh, as a society, we, we just don't very often get to a place where if we skip a meal, we're really in a problem. And yet, that wasn't the case back in Jesus' day. So many people lived based on the meal that would be in front of them. To miss even a meal or two was to put yourself in real peril. Well, the problem is multiplied by the fact of the, how many people are there. We're told that Andrew did a little napkin, uh, Philip did a little napkin math to figure out oh, how much it would take to feed these people. And he said 200 denarii or 200 days worth of work wouldn't be enough for everyone to even get just a little morsel. In other words, this is a problem too big for any human resources to solve. Now, all this was really an occasion that Jesus picked. I mean, he, John tells us that Jesus already knew what was going on. This was, a, in a sense, a test to see how his disciples would respond. <clears throat> Verse 8, we see then uh, Andrew interjects. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. But what are they for so many? Barley loaves were the poor man's bread. There's an ancient general that's recorded as saying that it was not fit for human consumption and it was barely fit for even giving to the animals. Barley was not known for being particularly nice in texture and taste. And yet it would 
fill you well enough, but five barley loaves would have been enough for one person, a boy maybe, to eat. Along with that, he had a couple of fish, probably pickled fish. You can think of it as the equivalent of five Cheetos and two cans of tuna. What's that going to do for a Pacers stadium full of fans? Well, as we know, this is just the occasion for the miracle that Jesus will do. Now, Jesus has everyone sit down. Then it says that he takes the bread and he gives thanks for it. It doesn't say that he blesses the food. Very often we think of a prayer before meals as to bless the food, as if we're doing something spiritual to the food. But as in a pattern of an ancient rabbi, he, he thanks God. In that sense, he blesses God, the giver of food. And then he does, frankly, a miracle. Doesn't tell us how he does it. Just as he distributes the bread and then he distributes the fish and everyone gets all they want and more. Maybe he snapped off a piece and then more came out and snapped off another piece. Or maybe it was in the basket and it just never, came, never got to the bottom. I don't know. Somehow or the other, it happened. The point is that Jesus provides in a way that no one else can. He does a miracle. And as a result, everyone has something to eat. Verse 12, and when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten them. Now, this story, as I alluded to earlier, sometimes is presented as if it's telling us how we are to share with one another. If you have enough faith, even your little lunch will be enough to go around. Other times, it's closer to the text. It's, uh, it's telling us about how Jesus can provide when we don't have the resources to provide. Or maybe a church that's struggling to meet its budget, or a family that's in crisis because of finances, or emotional energy that just seems to be running out. And Jesus is the one that can provide. Well, that's a, a true statement. And yet the rest of John 6, 6 will show us that this is one of those miracles with a message. Jesus is showing us a spiritual truth that he provides that which we truly need for our souls, which no one else can provide. You can see that in the metaphor he chooses of bread itself. Bread was not just a choice snack. It's what people lived on. If you don't have bread, you're dead. Jesus multiplies bread to show us that that which you need for life, Jesus himself provides. He'll spend the rest of the chapter teasing that out. We'll get to it in the weeks to come. Now, all of us know this to be true. This is what Jesus does. He brings life to our dead souls, doesn't he? The Bible tells us that that's why the author of life came into this broken, dead world to die on a cross so that he can grant life to any who would believe in him. The feeding of the 5,000 then is a, a miracle to show us what sort of king Jesus is. He's the, the sort of king that grants us life at the deepest level, life that no one else can give us. Uh, maybe you're here this morning and you feel spiritually famished this morning. Maybe God feels very distant to you. Maybe it's because of some sin in your life. 
Maybe it's just a circumstance that has you smarting this morning. You're hurting. And you just have a hard time feeling like God's close to you. This miracle is designed to remind you that Jesus can fill you up when you are empty spiritually. That when you don't feel like you have any life in yourself, that Jesus is the giver and sustainer of your life. That he knows how to give you precisely what, he, what you need. Not necessarily what you want, but what you need. Now, I do think that there are undoubtedly applications that we should draw from this related to our stewardship. I mean, uh, that little detail at the end about how Jesus tells them to gather up the leftover fragments, I don't think that's just a detail in the story there for no reason. Certainly as a church family, we need to realize that even as Jesus has no limits to his resources, even as God's checkbook never runs dry, yet we're to be wise about the way we spend God's money. We're to use all of the resources to the greatest possible impact, even making sure that nothing is lost in God's economy as much as we're able. And yet, most importantly, we are to see that Jesus is our sustainer. Jesus is the one that gives us life. That's really what this story is about. You know, friend, I was thinking about that prayer we do before meals. My guess is most of us do that. Um, even my kids know before meals, we, we pray, right? And uh, I was thinking about how so often that becomes a rote, almost of a boring sort of prayer. Just kind of get it over with so you can get to the meal. And yet, if we were to take this to heart, that Jesus is actually trying to draw our attention from our stomachs to our souls and how he meets that need, friend, every time you're about to take a bite to eat, you have an opportunity to worship Jesus as the king who provides for your soul. Every time your stomach growls, every time you get a little hangry, Every time you feel your energy dipping just a little, it's a reminder you are a dependent being. You cannot provide what your body needs of your own. Something had to die for your body to keep living. Whether that was a cow for its meat or a plant for grain, something had to die for you to have any sort of food. And for us spiritually, someone had to die for us to have life. Jesus. Maybe our meals and that prayer time right before, even as you go to lunch with somebody after church, maybe use that meal time to thank Jesus for bringing you spiritual life and use that hunger, even for the food in front of you, to remind you of what he did that no one else can for your soul. Well, you would think as Jesus provides such a miracle like this, designed to draw the attention, not, not just to the physical, but to who he really is, the, the king who cares for us spiritually, you would think that the people might draw the connection to Jesus. But as the chapter will reveal, that's not the case. Like so often, they miss who Jesus is. And in this case, they, they seek to try and control the king to use him for their own agendas. In verses 14 through 15, we'll see Jesus is an uncontrollable king. In verse 14, when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, 
Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Now remember this expectation, even this spiritual zeal in the air, this palpable sense that God was about to free them from the Romans. The people saw yet another miracle, and at this point they had seen enough. This must be the prophet that we have been waiting for. As we've seen as we've been studying John's gospel, this is a, a reference to Deuteronomy 18, to the prophecy that there would be another prophet like Moses that would come, that God's people should listen to him when he comes. In John's day, those people had taken the prophecy of that prophet and mashed it together with the other things of the Messiah, and they had expected that this prophet that would come would be their deliverer. They are convinced that Jesus is the one that is going to solve their Roman problem. And so they decide now is the time to capitalize on this opportunity. They decide they are going to make him king. Now, notice what it does not say. It does not say that the people recognize that Jesus was their king. It doesn't say that the people decided to ask if Jesus would want to become their king. No, it says the people sought to take him by force and make him king. These are not people bowing before the king of the world. These are people trying to control him and to use them for their own agenda. It's understandable at one level why. If you're this hungry for a rebellion to, to overthrow your oppressor, think of the ingredients you would need to accomplish that. First, you'd need an army. Then you would need someone to lead that army. Then you'd need someone to feed that army. And then you'd need an opportunity. Well, you need an army. You've got 5,000 men and 15,000 others right there, all ready to follow Jesus. No problem on leadership. This man can do miracles. He's got a following far larger than even this group. How about feeding them? Well, he just multiplied bread in front of everyone. How, how about that for a supply chain for your army? What about an opportunity? What better time than over the Passover for God to do the miracle again to free his people? You can see how they would come to that conclusion even as it totally misses the sort of king that Jesus is. Jesus, for his part will not have any part to this he he withdraws yet again because Jesus is not a king you can control he's a king on his own mission on his own agenda and no one can claim him for their cause what we see here is the first of a long line of people that have tried to use Jesus to accomplish their own ends a line that keeps going even until today Think of how many politicians feel the need to invoke some manner of association with Jesus so that their particular brand of politics feels like it's got Jesus on their side. Or how many speeches that are given that invoke the words of Jesus to give them a, a added weight and gravity to them. I remember sitting down with one particular guy. He really thought that he could be a defender of the good 
even to, to go and shoot the bad guys, as he said it. But he thought he could do that in a Christian way, much like a modern crusader. And we sat down and we, we worked through the text and came to the conclusion, Jesus isn't that sort of king. He doesn't conquer the way kings of this world conquer. Uh, one day he's going to be standing before Pontius Pilate and he'll be asked, are, are you king of the Jews? And you remember what he responds? John 18, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. No, he's not the sort of king that will march into Jerusalem with sword and spear. No, in fact, he will be on the other end of a spear. He's not the sort of king that wears a jeweled crown with gold. He wears a crown of thorns. He's not the sort of king who crushes his enemies. He's the sort of king that lets himself be crushed by them. Because his kingdom's not of this world. He didn't come to use force to bring the kingdom of God. He came to do it by giving up his life and bringing the good news of the gospel to a world that desperately needs it. Jesus is not the sort of king that you can control, and he's not beholden to any of our agendas. I think even as believers, we struggle with this, of trying to turn Jesus into a king for our own agendas. Even well-meaning, in well-meaning ways we do this. We, we find causes that we love so deeply, so passionately. We just want Jesus to be on our side. Yeah, friends, there are quite a few things we have to be humble about. It may not be obvious to us how Jesus would react to a particular situation. We ought to be very careful about claiming that Jesus is on our side for a particular modern issue. Or what about the way we re respond even personally? You ever find yourself saying, surely Jesus would want this for me? Surely he wants me to have a spouse, to be happy, to have that job I've always dreamed about? Surely he wants me to be, in some sense, emotionally stable? Surely this can't be Jesus' will for my life. This is too hard. If friends, what if King Jesus wants precisely that for you? Because what if in your want, your need, you'll find him to be the savior that provides in a way no one else can? Even as a church, we have to wrestle with this. I mean, there are some things that are, that are obvious as a church that we are to be about. We, we've been given the scriptures. We are to preach the gospel. We are to do what we can to be ministers of, that, of the scriptures and the gospel to the community we're in. But there are plenty of things that we just frankly don't know what Jesus will have for us. Would we bow before him if our church were to have slander in its future, were to lose its standing in the community? Would we bow before him if our budget turned out to not be what Jesus had for us, if we had financial struggles ahead? Would we bow before him, even if we had terrible internal disunity? Might that actually be what King Jesus would have for our church? If he's not the type of king we can control, 
then we have to accept whatever he gives us with an open hand. Yet, friends, we need to remember, as hard as it is to wrap our heads around that reality, that this is not a tyrant. Jesus is not the sort of king that cruelly asks us to walk through difficulty. He's not the sort of king that uses his force to manipulate or even abuse us. No, he's a king that can ask us to do the hardest of all things, to even follow him on his death march because he's already provided for us such a deep level, friends. The author of life that gave up his. The very God of heaven and all its glories that let himself be abused, let himself experience sorrow upon sorrow, so that when we go through it, he can truly understand and he can truly walk with us in this earth. Sometimes you can't tell whether you're bowing before King Jesus or trying to use him until disappointment strikes. I remember watching uh, a family that had this very dynamic play out. Um, uh, the husband was a professional athlete. He was on the cusp of being, uh, a, a, being a, a member of one of the largest professional uh, sports teams in the U.S., one that comes with millions of dollars attached to the contract, that sort of thing. And, and right as he was about to make that, injuries robbed him of that. He was a Christian at that point, and he later said, you know, I actually realized God had spared me. I was not ready for the temptations that were, would have come with that. After that, he decided he would serve King Jesus in any way that Jesus would have him. And that led him to seminary, and one day to becoming a pastor. And one day, he and his family started to feel the tug to a mission field far off, unreached people groups. All the, they did all the right things. They were in a church that sent lots of missionaries they got the right training. They got all the funding in place. It was strategic. It, it, he was going to bring something that others would not be able to provide. It made perfect sense. This was what King Jesus had for them. Then in the lead up to going, their son had to get, the, the, all their kids had to get a series of shots. And their, one of their sons, their youngest, reacted very poorly to one of the shots. It, it got so bad at one point, it looked like he might lose his ability to walk. Thankfully, he was fine, he recovered, but the doctors could not in good conscience give him the types of shots required to go into this country. So at that point, they said, okay, we'll just go into the country and take our chances. But their missions agency said, we won't let you go unless your son has these shots. So they said, okay, we'll, we'll go without a missions agency. I mean, clearly Jesus wants us to be here. We'll, he'll make a way for it. So they looked into going on their own. Only the further down the road they went, the more doors were closed until finally their dream died. What do you do with that? I'll tell you what that family did. They trusted that what King Jesus provided was what they needed. It was a hard, hard season. And yet what God had for them was a, a pastorate, They've been serving Jesus since then. Their family is flourishing. And when they look back at that time as hard as it was, they'll tell you 
Jesus gave them all they needed and more. Friends, are we trying to control Jesus? Are we trying to turn him into the type of king to do our bidding? Or are we bowing before him as the one who's already given us all we need for spiritual life now and forever? Let's pray.